what I always have tried to do is feel like I'm in the early innings and act like I'm in the early innings. You know, it's in the early, early innings that you're willing to learn and switch it up and uh, take feedback and really question everything you're doing. It's in the early innings that you're willing to stay up till the wee hours of the morning and you feel like you're still working in anonymity and everyone's indifferent to what you're doing. Um, you know, there's, there's no ego because you're just so humbled by all there is ahead of you. And, um, and so the early innings are just such a, such a fertile uh, period for new stuff to happen. You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Hello, everybody. We're live. Welcome to Louder Than Words, where I'm trying my best to provide a glimpse into the lives of some of the most innovative entrepreneurs, writers, designers, creators, um, anybody in that sphere uh, that we can get our hands on to provide all of us, myself included, a little more inspiration in our daily entrepreneurial creative lives. My name's John Benini. I'm a conversion copywriter by trade. I have a website where I post about creating copy that drives action from headlines to button text to emails. So please come and find me and connect. I'm at www.johnbenini.co and on Twitter at Benini84. Today is a treat, truly. It really is a treat because I get to hang out with Scott Belsky, a man that surely needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyways. Uh, Scott <laughs> founded Behance in 2006. Um, an online portfolio network for people in creative positions, but it's grown to be much, much more than that. Behance was actually later acquired by Adobe, where Scott currently serves as vice president of products and still um, head of, of everything Behance. He's also the author of the international bestseller, Making Ideas Happen. If that's not on your bookshelf, make that happen. And he's also an investor and advisor to companies like Uber, Pinterest, Warby Parker, Periscope, you know, little companies like that. Um, so he's, he's, he has his hands in a lot, um, speaks at a lot of conferences, TED conferences, really super smart guy, super creative. Scott, thanks so much for coming on today, man. How's it going? <laughs> thanks, John. Uh, great. Thanks for uh, having me. I always tell everybody that comes on here, if you ever need a hype man for, for any of your future <laughs> You're good. speaking gigs. Yeah. <laughs> Copywriting uh, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so for anybody listening who may have just discovered the internet for the first time, tell us about who you are and what it is that you do. Sure. Well, my passion for the past decade or so has been uh, organizing creative people and networks and really trying to empower creative careers. You know, all of this was kind of born out of a sense of frustration that I had with a lot of creative people that I knew who uh, always were jumping from idea to idea to idea, never really making anything happen. And it just seemed like, you know, with, with creativity, comes this, uh, you know, this burden to channel it in a productive way. And so that's, that's what I'm interested in. And, and Behance uh, is, a, is a platform to connect the creative world. You know, it's over 5 million creatives all around the world and growing very rapidly. Um, and this is a place where people come and showcase their work, get attribution and credit for their work, uh, get feedback on their work, are held accountable for things that they're working on. And, uh, and then out of, out of this uh, out of this platform, we've also developed all sorts of other things like something called 99U, which is a, we call it the missing curriculum that you never got in design school. But it's also much more than that. I think it's the annual kick in the ass that every creative mind needs to execute. 
And it's become, you know, now in its seventh uh, year, an annual conference and the think tank just devoted to uh, helping people make ideas happen. Well, your career actually started a little differently, right? You were involved in investment banking at Goldman Sachs. So that's quite a difference, you know, in, in <laughs> right. it's quite a career move. So why the switch? Yeah, right. That's my, uh, that's my secret previous life. Well, actually, I was never really a banker. So I, I, I was at undergrad at Cornell. I was studying both business and design. And then I decided to, uh, after graduating, uh, take the business route and cut my teeth, so to speak, in the business world. And at that time, what you did is you went to Wall Street. Um, so I lasted in a job there for about a year and a half and realized it really wasn't my thing and, um, and was about to leave the firm. And they asked me if there was anything else I'd be interested in doing to stay. And I said, well, it would be really cool to see you know, what goes on in the executive office. How is a organization like this grown? You know, and how do you resolve conflicts and problems with clients and things like that? And so there was this team in the executive office called Pine Street, and it was devoted to leadership development and succession planning and also working with clients in sort of like a management consulting capacity. And so I did that. And while I was doing that, I just realized the importance of design as a communications medium, uh, you know, whether it was trying to uh, diagram out how a business would be structured and things like that. I found myself using Adobe Illustrator more than I was using Excel. And it was very clear to me that design, you know, it plays a very powerful role in getting people on board with something, helping relay a business concept, you know. And, and, uh, and so that, I think, for me was uh, at least taught me how I want to build a business and how design-centric as a business principle was important to me. Um, and then it was during that job that I was also incubating the idea of Behance, this company that just helped organize the creative world. What's it like on Wall Street? Is it is it like the way they portray it in movies and stuff? Is it as <laughs> cutthroat and, and and aggressive? Well, I think you know I, this was a long time ago. So this is um, you know twelve to fifteen years ago. I think that a lot has changed for sure. I think it's it's you know not it's it, it's it can be perceived as a less honorable place to work right now, only because of the types of things that have been done you know, by a lot of these banks when they became greedy. And, you know, I think it's, I think there is an aggressiveness um, on Wall Street. Um, I think, you know, I was never really a trader and I was never really a banker in the traditional sense. So, you know, I don't have, I don't have like too much insight into the daily practice there. But yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's one spectrum of business where it's so focused on, on, on money, you know, financial return, you know, and then I, I, when I made the leap to entrepreneurship, especially focusing on a business, you know, f- focusing on the creative world, which was really a bootstrap business for five years with no clear path to making money. It was really like a, a passion for the team at the time. Um, you know, it was talk about the other end of the spectrum, you know, so I guess in some ways it was interesting to be working on both sides of that spectrum. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and you, it's, you kind of traded that East coast hustle a little bit for that West coast ideology where, you know, you've said that your mission is to help creative people actually create something. So that, you know, where, you know, there's obviously no more evidence of that than in the Silicon Valley area. Um, but now it's kind of spread everywhere. Um, yeah. But it, it's never been easier, I think, to create something. All the tools that we have at our disposal, how easy it is, not easy, but the opportunities that we have to develop our own platform and reach a lot of people. So even though it's become a lot easier to sort of, you know, 
bring our ideas to fruition. Why is this so hard and why was this such a worthy cause for you to uh, devote your life to? You know, I think that, um, well, I, I, you're, I want to comment on one thing you said, which is, you know, it is, it is harder, it is easier to you know, take an idea and put it into something actionable. You know, it's easier now than ever before. And, you know, a lot of technology companies right now, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of what we call the stack, you know, which is all the technology underneath the user experience at the top is fully commoditized at this point. I mean, you can get payments, you can get, you can host for, you know, $12 a month. You can have a lot of the APIs that allow you to do things like messaging and maps and all these things that you, know, you used to have to build from scratch can now be inserted with a line of code. And really, I think the distinguishing experience for customers now happens at the top, at that user experience, or what I like to call the interface layer. And to me, that's where creatives thrive. That's where creatives lead. And that's where designers become founders and major you know, stakeholders in new businesses. So I, I think that there's a tremendous opportunity you know, in, that, in that vector of thinking. Um, and in terms of my interest in, in, in helping creative people you know, take the seat at the table that they deserve. You know, it's not, it, it basically comes down to the fact that we oftentimes see create, we oftentimes see creativity as an opportunity. It's like, oh, wow, you know, you're so creative. You have ideas, you have this, you have talent, you can design it, whatever. I also like to see it as an as a responsibility. You, you kind of have to surround yourself with people that can help you um, be productive with it, who can hold you accountable. The, the doers rather than the dreamers. You know, a lot of the people that we don't like working with as dreamers are actually the people we need to work with to execute. So when you start thinking about the responsibility of creativity, you start realizing that it revolves, involves your team. It involves how you organize and manage your day-to-day, um, how you hold yourself accountable, how you optimize the way that you work. It, it involves compromise, sometimes focusing less on the next best idea and focusing more on doing something with the idea you've already got. And it's also about how to leverage your community in unique ways to, to get feedback and, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and more opportunity. And, that, and those are good points because I, th- uh, I became first acquainted with you from making ideas happen. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, at the time, I think I fancied myself as an idea guy. You know, I, I could come up with these remarkable ideas. So the title obviously appealed to me. But this book made me, I feel like, feel a little uncomfortable because I had this realization that, the guy with the great idea doesn't really mean shit. It's really the guy who can execute and ship on it. So, you know, and, yeah. and you know, kind of the thesis of the book is come to find out that execution is, is a skill that none of us are born with. It's something that must be learned. Tell me that you sort of learned this the hard way too, right? <laughs> yeah, well, sure. I mean, and, and I would just, you know, comment on you know, your, your, your point about how I, you know, ideas are, ideas don't happen by accident and they're not, be, and, don't, and ideas don't happen because they're great. There are a series of other forces. And yes, you're right. You can't be born with good execution. I think that's a skill you have to develop and, 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 and forced upon yourself. You know, it's, it's a, it's a restraint, it's a discipline. And, um, but there's something empowering about this because who knows where idea comes from and a lot of, or where creativity comes from. And there's a lot of argument about, Maybe we are born with creativity. Maybe there is something in our DNA that makes us more or less creative. But so maybe we can't control that part. But I think a lot of the folks listening to your podcast already have a lot of ideas. You know, creativity is not their problem. And the good news then is that execution is available to all of us. Um, you know, it's not it's not it's not easy. Uh, writing my book actually was 
while starting the business was this very meta experience because I had this idea of writing a book, which just seems so daunting. And, um, and it just was one of those ideas that I could never fully execute. And it happened to be that I was writing a book about fully executing an idea. <laughs> and, uh, so it was just, you know, there were very many times throughout the book where I was thinking, gosh, like, can I just practice what I preach right now? Can I, you know, I'm learning all these things in these interviews and I was spending so much time with these very, very productive creative leaders and teams uh, and trying to figure out what they do that's make, you know, that, that, that is their magic. And I'm like, wow, I have to do this for myself in order to get this book out the door. Yeah. It's almost like the subject matter was actually feeding the book. You had to sort of, you know, sit there and be stuck in order to write the rest of it. So what did, what did you, like, what did you take away from those experiences? Like what, how did you, um, you know, yourself and your own personal experience, how did you focus on execution and sort of develop and nurture that through that process? You were starting a business and like you said, writing a book, you were going through all these things. How did, what was that like personally for you? Well, I think that, um, well, first of all, you're never finished, and um, and there's a danger in feeling finished. Uh, I what I always have tried to do is feel like I'm in the early innings and act like I'm in the early innings. You know, it's in the early early innings that you're willing to learn and switch it up and uh, take feedback and really question everything you're doing. It's in the early innings that you're willing to stay up till the wee hours of the morning and you feel like you're still working in anonymity and everyone's indifferent to what you're doing. Um, you know, there's, there's no ego cause you're just so humbled by all there is ahead of you. And, um, and so the early innings are just such a, such a fertile, uh, period for new stuff to happen, um, and for great work to happen. And, and it's for some reason, as we, as we succeed and make progress, we depart that, those early innings. We start to feel like we know what we're doing. We start to take people's feedback less seriously. We become too self, self, self assured of ourselves. And, and I, I just think that it's important to always kind of take yourself back to the start, even when you're in the middle or even when you're towards the finish. Um, and, uh, you know, even when we got acquired by Adobe six, seven years into our business, um, I said, I said to the team, I think we're still in the early innings of what we actually set out to do in the world. And now we have more resources and fewer excuses to not pull it off. Um, so I think that's important. I also think, you know, staying in the early innings makes sure that you're, uh, you have a great sense of self-awareness. Um, and to me, self-awareness is the competitive advantage in, uh, in business. Um, because if you know, uh, what you're doing wrong, um, you can change and you can always stay ahead of the curve. The problem is, is that once someone or something come, becomes successful, you just start to think you know what's right and you start to close yourself off to what you're missing. Um, so those are some of the things that I've always, always kept in mind. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum are those people, and there's probably a ton of them listening right now. And also, I mean, I know a few of them personally, they have ideas, they have mm-hmm. they have a number of them. Some of them might even be great, um, but they're they're just waiting for something. Uh, you know, the, oh, I just need to get this site up, or I just I need to I need to nurture this better. I need to like the, there are so many ideas that never come to fruition, not because they're crappy, which there are plenty of those, but because the person just never just executes. Like, what do you what would you say to that person right now? Because surely there's more than a few of those listening. Yeah. Well. What I would say is that I would say that 
ambition requires a war against hesitation. You know, when, when, when creating so much of our friction and the hesitation is self-generated, I, I think in some ways self-doubt is like a chronic disease we all have, likely from childhood, and it becomes especially dangerous when it fools us into thinking it's protecting ourselves. I meet artists and entrepreneurs all the time who claim that they lack the support or the business skills or the capital or the readiness to take a risk in their career or to really try something new. Um, I guess I would say to everyone listening that nobody's ever ready. You know, our hesitation, um, you know, is is coming from the self-doubt we carry and, you know, also this energy that we al- always allocate to hedging. We're always hedging ourselves. We're always saying, oh, well, I should keep doing this job and keep doing this and not, and really not, I'm not really ready for that yet. Or maybe I'll wait a little bit longer. And, you know, we spend so much time crafting the perfect net when we should be jumping. Uh, so I, I just think that we have to remind ourselves that, you know, we're more resilient than we think, you know, the weaknesses that we have, and we all have them, aren't necessarily the blockers that we think they are, and that we have to kind of, you know, declare war on the hesitation. I love that. And, and I love Seth Godin's sort of praise of your book. Um, he says, you know, part of it says that ideas that are never shipped are never criticized, so it's safe. So do you think that plays a role into it too? Is it just, there's there's an innate fear, I think, in taking something that we put so much emotional labor into and then seeing it fail or, mm-hmm. or because then it's like, wow, everything that I, everything that I thought and dreamed of was just a terrible idea. But is it like, I mean, is there something in the execution where maybe it doesn't work the first time? Like we're so afraid of seeing our, our baby fail that I think that that prevents a lot of people from, from ever executing too. Would you say that that's accurate? Well, what I would say is that, um, you know, the much like our, our ideal of perfect love, you know, like, you know, in the flesh in the real day to day, there's no perfect relationship and there's no perfect idea. Um, but sometimes the ideal of an idea is much better than the reality. Um, uh, in fact, it always is. And I think that what we have to do is get excited about real life with an idea, um, you know, the energy and excitement when a new idea strikes is extraordinarily high. And at that moment, every idea is perfect and amazing and you're intoxicated on it and you'll stay up till the wee hours of the morning and you'll even quit your job or whatever. Potentially, you know, you're so excited about it. Um, and, 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 you know, and I think what you're saying is a lot of people anticipate the fact that it will dissipate and they don't want that. They want to stay with that high of the energy and excitement that, you know, accompanies a new idea that's still in their minds and hasn't been battered down and, and, and outed by the world. Um, so this is, again, where it comes down to the responsibility side of the equation. Uh, it's, it's such a shame that so many ideas are conceived and lost in the minds of creative geniuses who never share them and who never act upon them. I mean, think about how much better our world would be if those ideas were put to the test and put out there and shared and iterated on and resourced and executed so there has to be some notion of this is bigger than ourselves. We kind of have to get stuff out there. We have to, um, I mean, obviously for our own careers, yes, but for everyone else. I mean, there's also some, some collective benefits that maybe, maybe you share your idea and you fail to execute it, but someone else executes it and makes it happen. That's a good thing. It's not good for you particularly, but it's good for the world. And so maybe we should just, you know, uh, just make sure that ideas see the light of day and have a chance. 
And I was watching one of your TED Talks last night, and in it you said, it was like in the intro, you said that even the greatest ideas suffer horrible odds, which I think scares us a little bit because I think we all have this very ideological view of the world where it's a meritocracy. If I just have a great idea, it's going to work. You know, I don't mm-hmm. have to, I don't have to promote it. I don't have to, like, if I just have something that aligns with what people need and their interests and I just release it to the world, it's going to work. It's going to take off. It's going to be the next Facebook or the next Google. But why do great ideas suffer horrible odds and, and how do we, is there a way to avoid that? Um, well, the, the reason ideas suffer horrible odds is just all of the, all of the headwinds, you know, all of the friction, you know, you have the, you know, the, 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 the gravitational force of operations and whatever you have to do that's due tomorrow, everything that's urgent in your life will always pull you away from what's important over the long term. And, um, and then, you know, we don't like, we say we like feedback, but we really don't want negative feedback. You know, we say we need accountability, but we don't tell our ideas to people to hold us accountable to them. Um, we, creative teams are notoriously bad at sticking together because they're highly emotional environments. And so teams don't stick together long enough to make ideas happen. You know, these are all of the frictions and, you know, and headwinds we're up against. And that's why, you know, most ideas never see the light of day. And by the way, most ideas should never happen. I mean, think about it. Uh, we, a lot, <laughs> the, the society you know, runs and keeps the water running through conformity. And, uh, you know, and if every single, you know, person had new ideas that they were always pursuing, nothing would ever exist. Nothing would ever run. Um, so there is this natural immune system of society that is intended to kill everything new in order to keep us healthy, just like the body is supposed to kill everything new to, you know, to make sure that our, you know, our, our health is sustained. The only exception of wanting a strong immune system is if the doctor were to ever give you an organ transplant. And the first thing the doctor needs to do is suppress your immune system so you can take on something new. You can literally change your body. And so that's what the, that's the role of innovators in society is to find a way to suppress the immune system enough to like let something new take hold against all of those headwinds, I guess, against all of the friction that gets in the way of a new idea seeing the light of day. Yeah, it's called disruption for a reason, right? Yeah, it's um, very disruptive, and it's probably not so healthy if it's too much. So tell us about tell us about Behance, because prior to that, like you were saying before, you were at Goldman Sachs. Um, you hadn't really, you know, this was like your first or your first, you know, big successful expansive foray into entrepreneurship and creating your own thing. So how how was that idea hatched, and and um, you know? Did you think it was going to work to, you know, to the extent that it has? Well, you know, Behance was really started as a passion project. As I said, you know, in 2004, 2005, this is a long time ago, but I was incubating this idea while I had that, that job in the Pine Street team and um, at Goldman. And, and this, you know, the idea was to focus on you know, I love that Edison quote, genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. The idea was to focus on the 99% um, as it relates to the creative world. I just felt like there were so many conferences and books and everything focused on creativity, yet the people that were listening to them didn't really even need that. They needed more execution. That's what they, they didn't need. They weren't short of creativity. Um, and so, uh, and so, that's, so we actually first started the company and founded it as, with, with a paper product. 
And it was a paper product called Action Method or Action Products. You know, these were products designed to help you have more productivity and brainstorms and sort of creative zones of, of work. And, um, and uh, you know, that materialized into a blog chronicling the best practices of the most productive creative teams and, uh, you know, which, which, which became the inspiration for the book project. Um, and, uh, and really only a year or two into the business did we really start cranking on the network because we realized that the creative community is probably one of the most disorganized communities in the world. It also is the same community that makes life interesting for all of us and compels us to take action, to buy things, to engage and to understand things. I mean, the creative community is responsible for pretty much everything um, around us. So uh, I really felt there was a need um, and uh, to have like a LinkedIn of the creative industry. Um, and so that's kind of how it all materialized. And you know, honestly, we never, we didn't raise money for five years. We were a bootstrap business trying to um, break even on our revenue. And, uh, and it wasn't until like five years into the business where we were like, wow, you know, this is actually really growing fast and we can't sustain the growth um, well without you know, hiring more people. Yeah, and and you you sort of started like a little movement too because now you have things like Dribble pop up, and there is this organization now surrounded by creatives. They have somewhere like these meeting grounds. Like I have a brother um, who, well, actually both of my brothers are are both in the graphic design field, and um, but one of them is is really really active on Behance, and mm-hmm. it, it is it is like this communal thing that I don't think existed. Um, you know, prior to things like Behance. So, th- so it's really interesting to, yeah. see, to see that evolution and it must make you feel, it must make you feel great. Yeah, it does feel good. And, you know, and listen, when people ask me which creative community or design community they should put their work on, I say all of them because, you know, you should see where you're getting the most traction. You know, what we've tried to do is build a platform optimized for the, the discovery of creative work. So, you know, our hope is that if someone puts their work up there, they have the best chance of getting found by the most people and the best people. Um, but you should put, you know, people should put their work in as many places as they can. I mean, part of your job is marketing of yourself and people need to take that seriously. So talk about more of the evolution because, you know, what started as, as Behance has become, you know, so much more than that because, you know, you, you alluded to it earlier. You mentioned 99U. Tell everyone, um, you know, the, the very few who might not know, you know, wh- what is 99U and, and um, you know, sort of what was the, uh, the, the genesis of how that whole thing came about? Yeah. So, well, well if, if TED is all about ideas, then 99 is, 99U is the antithesis of TED. Because 99 is all about the execution. And so we actually only allow people to come and speak and share insights into how they executed their ideas. So they talk about how they kept their teams together, how they held themselves accountable, how they, um, how they run meetings, you know, how they overcame their, their self-doubt you know, in the process. Um, little, little insights into just various angles of their approach to their creative work. But... Um, you know, and when people come and they say this is like unlike any other conference because I'm not leaving with more ideas. I'm actually just leaving with more ways of executing the ideas I've already got, you know, more things I'd like to tweak and change in the way that I work and structure my team and all that stuff. And so that is um that 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 is the conference, and it's you know, now it's a thousand people every year in Lincoln Center in New York City. It's uh, people actually apply to come, so we have a real interesting, diverse audience of people with a great sense of intention. And, 
And then the, the, the website, which is 99u.com, um, it, it's full of all the, all the videos and articles and research that we conduct around this area of execution. Yeah, and it's it's become its own like publishing arm too because like you said you have the blog but there's you know there's books that are you yep. know under the 99U umbrella. You know, did you have aspirations when you first started of I mean essentially it's like being a media company. Like you have blogs, yeah. you have these books, you have magazine like and there's so much consumption not just for like graphic designers but I buy this stuff and I'm a writer. Um yep. you know, you you gather insight from all these different people um into you know a lot of the books that you guys put out like was this was this something that 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 was like uh, part of the initial inspiration to start all of this? Um, well, it's it's funny, you know. I, it, we didn't have an we didn't know what we were going to do, so I guess part of the answer is no. But we also knew what we wanted to do. We had this mission to organize and empower the creative world, and that hasn't changed since day one. And we knew we were willing to pursue this mission as a mission-centric and medium-agnostic business. And when I say medium-agnostic business, what I mean is we'll use any medium to pursue the mission. So we will create a paper, a paper product, we'll create a book series and become a publisher, we'll create an you know, incredible mobile and, and, and web technology like Behance has become. Um, you know, we'll, we'll even do, we've even done consulting over the years or we've done, you know, we have a, a physical conference, right? So we're very medium agnostic. And I think that that's, again, another new trait of modern businesses is that they can sort of defy their medium and really approach and reach their customer and, and solve the problem in whatever way they need to. And you said there's a there's a conference. Well, uh, what time of year in the Lincolns? That's a, that's a great venue. Um, yeah, uh, right up near right up near Broadway. So where whereabouts is uh, when or when is that conference? So the conference actually just happened. It's um, every uh, every year. It's usually the kind of last day of April, first day of May type of thing. It's usually a, that last weekend. Um, and it's uh, you know the, the talks you know, we release online. They're just phenomenal talks. You know that I recommend folks listen to only because they're, it's sort of the, you know, it's part of that missing curriculum we never got um, as entrepreneurs, as creators that, you know, we kind of need to get our act together. Where can people check those out? The, uh, the talks? Yeah. So that's just nine, nine, you.com just awesome. nine, nine and the number nine, nine and you. Great. And, you know, you also, you advise companies like Pinterest, Uber, Warby Parker, more recently Periscope. Great pro product, sure. But, you know, as you've said, even the greatest ideas uh, can suffer horrible odds. Um, and, we, and we know that Uber wasn't the first company to try to disrupt mass transit. Um, you know, not, not basically the, the, you know, the moral there is not all the successful companies that are currently disrupting industries were the first ones to try to get in that space. So yep. what really makes these ideas and these companies super, super successful? Like the, the ones that you specifically work with? Well, I think, I mean, the, if, if, if I had the, the one word answer would be people, um, the types of people that are involved in their resilience and their self-awareness and their determination and the brute force involved in some of cases to, to, to make something actually exist you know, despite all of the headwinds and friction and regulatory issues and all that stuff that some of those companies, um, you know, involved. Um, and, but also there's this, there's this really you know, great sense of the experience you're creating. You know, all of the businesses that I've invested in over the years now, 
they're all um, trying to craft a user experience um, that you know somehow saves us time, um, makes it, makes life better, you know, in some way. Um, and a lot of those businesses are also able to empower people that are providing the services, um, you know, in, in new and new and interesting ways. So um, I think that. It's it's hard. Every every listen. Every business is its own animal and has its own story, um, and uh, and there's always luck and timing involved with any one of these products coming to market and succeeding or, or failing. Um, but uh, I, it's just it comes down to the people, I think. And so when when it comes to investing, uh, I love Gary Vaynerchuk. He has a really interesting, you know, and and widely shared view on investing, and it's just like. You know, he doesn't invest in ideas. Every, you know, he says every millennial with a backpack and a hoodie has an idea. Um, <laughs> what he's looking for is the execution. So a guy like you, who obviously the entire thesis of, of your book and, and, you know, your speaking engagements is this, you know, um, nurturing and developing the, the ability to execute. What do you need to see when you invest in somebody or, or, or a company or an idea? Well, I think that um, the first thing is I really believe that um, – initiative is more important than experience. So people who have a history of taking initiative and what's interesting to them typically continue to do so in whatever is interesting to them in the future. And so if you, uh, and, and the way you measure this is really easy. You know, you ask people what their interests are, even their personal interests, and, uh, and then you ask them what they've done about it. You know, what have you done about that interest? Oh, nothing. I just go sailing occasionally versus, oh, you know, I actually started a sailing club and I started a sailing blog in college. And then I, you know, I go to the sailing convention every year and I've actually become the chair of the convention and I don't know, whatever it is. But um, I think that that's, you know, that's how you measure uh, initiative. And, um, and so I like to back initiators and then I love to then get into the design sensibility, like what they're trying to do that's innovative for a user experience um, that, that needs to exist. And, uh, you know, and a few other things. But that, that's, that's how I approach the people side of things. Yeah, it's that it's that fully immersed, you know, and and that person that invests in themselves because obviously if they're if they're, you know, seeking fundraising, they've invested a lot in themselves already. You know, and they, they yep. whatever it is, time, like you said, going to conferences, starting blogs, and you know they're probably buying plugins, and they're probably you know paying for platforms and domains, and and they're doing all this stuff with no money. They're just in the faith in the idea. So, um, yeah, I love that backing initiators. So, um, I want to get a little personal into your your process because I think creative people love basically seeing like what's on each other's desks, right? That that sort of mindset. So, what do your days look like? Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I hesitate to say the word typical because I'm sure for a guy like you, there, there's anything, but, but you know, w- what are your, what do your weekdays look like? What do my weekdays look like? Let me pull up my calendar and try to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, listen, I, I think that, um, what I try to remind myself is that if you really want to know someone's values, just look at their calendar because it's really, <laughs> you know, it's wherever they spend their time. Yep. And, you know, so I do have date nights held to be home and spend time with family and stuff. And, you know, I, I do try to have time on the weekends where I can focus on, you know, friends that I value and care about and, and time uh, and, and, of course, time, more time with family. You know, and, and in terms of my, you know, my, my professional life, uh, I'm fiercely protective of my time. Um, I like to have quick standing meetings, uh, you know, 15, if, 
call it 15 minutes or so with folks that I'm working with in teams versus our arbitrary hours on a calendar, because I find that when you know it's going to be a short actionable meeting, people come more prepared and people jump to the point. Um, I also, you know, I try to you know, think about the people whose careers I feel very responsible for, and I'm trying to really mentor and guide and make sure that I have sufficient time scheduled with those people just to make sure I know where their head is at and what they're struggling with and what they want to do. Um, more of, I, I, every, every week I do spend, um, I guess the, the exception to the long meeting rule is a, a typical three hour meeting with um, one of my product concepting teams. So they're, when, when I gathered the designers together and part of, um, one of one of the products in my organization and we really just sit down and go through design comps and discuss and debate a lot of the intricacies. And those are the meetings where I don't want them to be rushed because we're actually really in this concepting mode um, and, and really kind of looking at the designs and advocating for the user and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and then, and then, you know, as, as part of my job at Adobe now, you know, a lot of it is trying to reconcile Adobe's mobile strategy across the entire company. Um, and so I, I spend a lot of my time now, uh, you know, generating buy-in and getting up to speed, you know, folks who are coming onto our teams are working with us and other teams around the company. So I think that, you know, there's, and I, and I try to actually have like drinks and or breakfast with, with companies that I'm either an investor in or working with in some way. And, uh, and, and that's how I approach every week. The, 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 the struggle that I have, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will um, identify with is, you know, I kind of operate at hundred percent capacity, which is great unless you're sick or if something comes up that you didn't expect and you just have no room. Like I don't have any windows. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm trying to figure that out still. Well, we're going way over your 15-minute block here, so I <laughs> appreciate the time. Uh, so do you have your phone near you? I do. What is, what's on your home screen? Like, What kind of apps and stuff are most important to you on your home screen? Um, well, I love Periscope. You know, I find it to be a truly transformative experience. I'm obviously very biased because I you know, work closely with them. But uh, I, I, I'm an avid user of Slack as a way of communicating with my teams. Great app, yep. Yep. Um, I love Twitter. I think that Twitter is the most efficient way to digest what's going on in the world in real time. And, you know, people who don't use Twitter, I, I just don't understand how they don't use it. <laughs> um, it's just, uh, I find it very effective. I have, uh, I have my Behance app, of course, to see all the people's work that I'm following. I have photos, uh, so I can always see the latest family photos. Instagram. Um, and then Wonderlist, you know, Wonderlist is my app that I use these days for task management. And I think it's fantastic. Love that. Yeah. Everything from groceries to the do's at work. It's uh, that's a great one. Yeah. yeah. I, I always think there's a lot you could tell when you just look at somebody's home screen, like what the, what they value. So it's super interesting. Any other great like tools or apps or productivity hacks that, um, you would, you would, you would share with anybody? Let's see. What else? Um, <clears throat> uh, let's see anything else that's. No, I have a bunch of things that I'm playing with that aren't launched yet, so it's too early to share those, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, I think that, I think, I, I mean, I, I do also, you know, well, Uber is certainly on my home screen, obviously, but um, I, I love, uh, you know, I've been using uh, apps like Postmates and Reserve and stuff to try to make sure that, you know, the 
optimize just the food delivery stuff. I find that so fascinating. It's just anything that really buys you time, you know, mm. anything that you feel is just allowing you to use your time, you know, more at your own discretion to me is uh, something worth paying for. Yeah. Those are the, those are the, the ideas that are really, um, you know, gaining traction. So ones that are optimizing time or, yeah. or your calendar. Yeah. Um, ultimately what we all want to buy more of is time. So you, you obviously have a ton of real estate online where people can come and find you. Where do you want to direct people to after they, they're done listening to this podcast? Where should people go from here? That's nice of you to ask. You know, I would, I would invite people to you know, follow me on Twitter, which is probably where I'm most active. It's just at Scott Belsky. And, uh, and I would, you know, just based on the interests of, of your listeners, you know, certainly check out 99U. It's a labor of love for our team. And, uh, you know, I think it's chock full of information that has certainly helped me in my life and hopefully will help you as well. And I can also second that too. I can, I can vouch 99, the books and, and the blog are, are certainly worth not only checking out, but bookmarking. Uh, thanks. Scott, thanks so much for coming on here today. This was oh, so much fun. Uh, thanks for carving out so much time. Um, learned a lot and, and it was truly a pl- uh, pleasure having you on here. Thanks again for having me. And for all the listeners, thank you for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, like us, subscribe, share with your friends, and be sure to tune in next time for more great guests. We'll see you next time. So long, everyone.